You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. This morning, I'm going to be speaking about a um, a huge subject, the subject of addictions, and how that we as Christians not only fall into them, but struggle with them and deal with them. It is a huge, huge subject. It's a very complex subject, and I can really only begin to scratch the surface of this subject. The Bible has so much more to say about the issue of addictions, but I think that it's important since the Apostle Paul essentially takes us there in his in his teaching, that it's important that we, uh, at least on one level, delve into this issue. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me, and, um, and then we'll jump into the passage of Scripture. So let's pray together. Father, this issue of addiction is, is something that is absolutely ravaging our culture, our society. People outside the church, and sadly, many, many people within the church, your people, are bound by addictions. They are enslaved by addictions. And so, Lord, as we begin to speak about this issue this morning, you would give hope to those who are bound. Give a sense of optimism to those who are enslaved to particular habits. To know, Lord, that they can be free in Christ. Lord, the Scriptures teach us that you came to give us freedom, to emancipate us from the tyranny of sin. And so I pray this morning, Lord, that you would accomplish that, that in the lives of many people across our church, you would begin to instill um, a sense of hope that they can be free, that they would begin to hear your call in their heart to step out of the rut that they have lived in for such a long time and begin to walk in newness of life. So Lord, we know that addictions are, are tyrants, and they are so difficult, so difficult to break, so difficult to surmount and get past. But Lord, with your help and by your grace, you can allow us to walk in freedom and in newness of life. And so I pray, Lord, that for many in our church today, that would begin, that that journey to freedom would start. And so I pray that you would work in us individually and as a church family right now, even though we are scattered, Father, we're together by your Spirit. Work in us, we pray, and bring freedom and newness of life, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, over the years, Cindy and I have had the, the great privilege of visiting a bunch of um, ancient cities all over the world. And one of the things that you notice when you travel to ancient cities is the level of eroticism, the level of uh, how that culture was sexualized. So if you go to Pompeii in Italy, uh, you will see front and center the brothels. And outside the brothels, there are pictures depicting the cost of certain services available inside the brothel. It was, it was shameless, it was in front of you, it was out there. Oftentimes when you're walking around Pompeii, you'll see phalluses carved in, in the stone, just as a symbol of strength, as a symbol of good luck, but they're, but they're everywhere, unashamed, 
blatant sexual um, uh, and erotic. In Ephesus, it's no different. If you go to Ephesus, you can find on the main carta, the main street, it's called the carta, uh, in Ephesus, a, um, a little advertisement for the brothel. It tells you where the brothel is. It's, if you've seen the picture of Ephesus, you know that famous three-story library? It's straight across the road from the library. And archaeologists have discovered a tunnel between the library and the brothel. So the library was front and center in the city, as was the brothel. The first century culture was an extremely sexualized culture. It was an extremely erotic culture. And as a consequence, the apostles in the New Testament had to deal with the fact that sin and perversion were coming into the church. So to give you an example, the Apostle Paul wrote, wrote to the Galatians, and he says this to the Christians of the Galatian churches, don't be involved in orgies or in group sex, because if you are, then you can't inherit the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul deals with incest. A son is having a relationship with his father's wife, his stepmother. In chapter 6, he deals with the issues of adultery, homosexuality, and cult prostitution. And those are only four examples of something that is under the surface in all of the New Testament writings. The church was bombarded, and many people in the church were corrupted by the sexuality and the culture and the eroticism of the first century world. And so the passage that Doug wrote, read for us this morning says this, Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So Paul right off the bat at the beginning of this section of the scripture, he says, I want to tell you something and I want to tell you that I'm speaking for God now. I'm speaking for the Lord. You must not live like the Gentiles or the, the, the culture, the prevailing culture in which you Christians live. So how are the Gentiles living? How were they behaving? If you go down to verse 19, Paul describes it. It says they have become callous. They have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, if you sort of tease that verse apart, they have become callous. They have given themselves up to sensuality or sexuality, and they are greedy, they are passionate to practice every kind of sexual impurity, every lascivious, licentious perversion. That's who the Gentiles were. So the Paul Little unauthorized uh, uh, amplified version of that passage could read something like this. Now this is the Paul Little unauthorized uh, New Living Translation. But here's what it would say. Don't be like the, the Gentiles who live in the surrounding culture. They have ceased to feel shame and guilt for their sin, and they've become apathetic about it. They have given themselves over to the control of their lusts and now have an insatiable desire for more and more immorality and more and more depravity. So Paul is writing to the Christians, Christians, and he says, don't live like the Gentiles. How do the Gentiles live? In sexual excess, in perversion. They are bound and enslaved to their sin. 
And he's telling Christians, don't live like that. Today, in our culture, we are no different. Now, clearly, the purveyors of perversion have better technology. They didn't have all of the technological capacities that we do. But when you visit those first century cities, one thing becomes absolutely clear about the heart of man, that it is sinful and it is corrupt. The 21st century and the first centuries are no different. Unbridled sexual sexuality, sexual sin and perversion were and are a huge problem in the church. Now you may be thinking, Paul, I'm glad you're preaching this because there's people out there who need to hear this. But I am not a sex addict. I don't watch pornography. I'm faithful to my spouse. So I'm glad you're going to talk about this, but I don't need to hear it. I want you to stop for a second and reconsider that thought. Although sexual sin is the immediate issue that Paul is dealing with in this passage of Scripture, more broadly he is speaking about anything, anything that has a hold on us, anything that controls us, anything that enslaves us. So Paul is saying clearly Don't be enslaved to various addictions like alcohol or illicit or prescription drugs or pornography or gambling. But he would also say at the same time, don't be addicted to things that God says are good because we can become addicted to good things, good things that God has given to us for our pleasure and our blessing. He would say at the same time, don't be addicted to things like food, work, sex, shopping, social media, sports, television, and the list could go on. See, the reality is that that we as Christians generally have addictive personalities. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, all things are lawful for me. But not everything is helpful. Not everything is edifying. Not everything is a positive influence in my life. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. A Christian is a person who is marked by moderation and self-control. And so if we have compulsive, destructive behaviors that turn God's good gifts into compulsions, then we need to address those things as well. Too many of us are enslaved, and we don't want to admit it. Too many of us have secret idols in our lives. The idol of work. The idol of getting likes on Facebook. The idol of food, where we go for comfort and help us when we're discouraged or down or emotionally needing an uplift. So what does Paul say in this passage of Scripture? How does he address the issue? In this passage, I think Paul is giving us a path to freedom that we must understand and then choose to walk in. So I want to ask the question, in order to to defeat addictions, what must we do? 
How must we live in order to defeat addictions? And the first thing is this. We've got to come to the place where we recognize that change is necessary. So let's go back to verse 17. Paul says to them, I want to say something to you, and I want you to understand that I'm speaking for the Lord Jesus Christ when I say this. You must not live as the Gentiles live. If, if right now you were living the way the culture is living, if right now you were living the way the world is living, you must change. You've got to stop it. You've got to turn around. You've got to repent, and you've got to go in the opposite direction. Stop living like the Gentiles. So presumably, there were people in Ephesus who were living sinful lives, who were living the same erotic, living the same um, controlled, sinful lives as the people of the culture. Now, when you stop and you think about it, you go, that's terrible on one hand, then you stop and think about it and you go, but these people maybe six or eight weeks or six or eight months before that were part of that culture. You don't just instantly become a Christian and all of a sudden instantly change. There is a process. And so it shouldn't surprise us that sexual addictions, it shouldn't surprise us that people come into the church with compulsive behaviors. They get saved and they need to hear this. Stop behaving the way that you behaved before you became a Christian. That's essentially what, what Paul is saying. And what he says at the end of the passage is, here's the standard to which you are striving. Verse 24, we're called to live righteous and holy lives. So people come to Christ, they come into the church with all of their baggage, they're addicted to pornography. They're addicted to food. They're addicted to all kinds of stuff. And God says, through the process, you're going to grow up in me, and you're going to become a righteous and holy individual. And that's the goal. That is the goal that God has for all of us. As you know, within the church, there are Christians who are ravaged by addictions. We overeat. We're killing ourselves with food. And someone said, we're digging our graves with our teeth. Because we don't have the capacity to say no to ourselves. We watch pornography. We seek fulfillment in shopping. We love that adrenaline rush of going shopping and getting that new thing. We're addicted to social media and we waste tons of time on it. Many of us, particularly men, prioritize work over family, sports over scripture, and TV over time with God. And it is compulsive, it is an addiction. We can't stop ourselves. And I think what Paul is saying here is this. Eventually, we've got to come to the place where we say, it is wrong. There's no excuse for this anymore. It can't be tolerated in my life. Paul is saying it on behalf of Christ who was saying it. We must change. We must grow up in him. And here's the thing I want you to understand. We can change. 
we can change. It doesn't need to be like this. So I want to say to you this morning at the outset is this. If you are struggling with an addiction, a secret compulsive behavior that has a hold on you, it may not even be a sinful thing, but it's become a sin because it is an addiction. It it binds you. I want to say this. You can be free. You can be free in Christ. Every recovery ministry will teach that change begins when we admit that we have a problem. Change begins. The first step in transformation begins when we admit that we need to be healed. So if the Lord is calling you this morning, if you're feeling his his quiet voice in your soul right now saying, it's time to break out of this. I want you to listen hopefully to the rest of this message. I want you to be encouraged because God, by his grace and by the power of his Holy Spirit, can lead you on a journey to freedom. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. So today, if you are living like a Gentile, if you are bound in your sin, if you are not able to walk in newness of life, free in Christ, I want you to say, I've had enough. I want you to come to that place where you're going to make a decision to change. That's the first step. The first step is critical. Secondly, what Paul does for us is he identifies the root of the problem. He identifies the root of the problem. In verse 18, he says this, the Gentiles... They are darkened in their under... Well, actually, sorry about that. The end of verse 17, he says, they are futile in their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous. That verse, that little word there in verse 17 where it talks about being um, um, futile in their minds, it means devoid of the truth. Not, and he's talking about biblical truth. He's talking about the truth of God. They are devoid of truth. And he goes on and he explains what that means. They are darkened in their understanding because of the ignorance that is in them. They have a hard heart and they have become callous. That's who Gentiles are. Paul is saying that these Gentiles, because of the futility of their minds, are not operating on the basis of truth but on the basis of instinct and physical impulse or desire. And that's exactly what is going on today in our culture. People do what they want to do, what they are driven to do. And they justify it and they rationalize it. They make excuses for it. But it is not anything more than base, instinctive behavior. In 2 Peter, Peter takes a long, a long passage of Scripture to talk about false prophets, how that they are people who are following their own sensuality. And then later on in verse 12, describing these people, he calls them irrational animals, creatures of instinct. If there is anything that is prized and valued and honored today, it is the person 
who is a creature of instinct. It is that person who does what feels good. It is that person who lets it all out and does what their instinct, what their nature, what their body inclines them to do. And it's not the way Christians behave. Christians, regardless of whether you're being tempted to grab your computer and watch something illicit, or shop, or see how many likes you have on Facebook, or if you're being lured to the fridge, or being pulled to get in your car and drive to the beer store, or whatever it is, you must understand this. The root problem is that you are being driven by your body, not by truth. You're being driven by your instincts. In that moment, you are an irrational, unreasoning animal, a creature of instinct. And that is where the essence, that's where the source, that is where the foundation of all of our addictions lie. In this thing that the Apostle Paul calls the flesh. We'll talk about that in a second. But we also need to recognize this, not only that this is the problem, but this can't solve the problem. We need to recognize that the problem can never be the source of the solution. You can never will yourself out of an addiction. You can't discipline yourself out of an addiction just using this physical thing called the flesh. The flesh can't defeat the passions of the flesh. You can't defeat the instincts of the flesh by fighting it with the flesh, if that makes sense. Your instincts will win every time. Your desires, the desires of your body, will win every time. The battle is never won through willpower, rededications, recommitments, Self-help, pulling up your socks proverbially and trying harder. You in yourself, in your flesh, do not have the capacity to deal with the problem. The problem is your flesh and your flesh doesn't have the capacity to defeat your flesh. That's why why Jesus says in John chapter 6, one of the most profound things that you'll ever read. He said to his disciples, it is the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. One day my flesh will be revealed, uh, redeemed. There will be a resurrection. I will get a new body, a body like this body, so I will be recognizable to you. My fingerprints will then be the same as they are right now, and I will have a redeemed body like Christ's glorious post-resurrection body, and that's going to be awesome, and I'll have hair. You'll still be able to recognize me, but I'll have hair. That'll be a wonderful thing. (laughs) But until that happens, I am a redeemed man in a fallen body. And so many of us go at this fight. We we, we bring a knife to a gunfight, and we can't win it. Our instinct to sin... Our physical instinct and appetite and compulsion to sin far 
far, far outweighs our capacity to say no in the flesh. We don't have the tools. The flesh profits nothing. So you say, okay, Paul, I want to change. And you're right, I've tried and tried and tried a lot, and I've made recommitments and rededications, and I've promised God, and I felt so lousy, and I felt so guilty, and I said, I'll never do it again, only to do it again. What do I do? Well, I want you to notice, thirdly, the contrast that Paul makes between verse 18 and verse 19. He's talking about the futility of the mind of the Gentile, how they are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God. They have become calloused. Now listen to what he says in verse 19 about us as believers. Verse 20, about us as believers. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. Do you see all those words that convey illumination and truth and understanding? Learned, truth, taught, the truth is in Jesus. You heard. What Paul is saying is that the Gentiles who don't have the truth are as a consequence slaves to their sin, to their instinctive fleshly impulses. But Christians who have the truth have a potential, a potential that the Gentiles don't have, a potential to be transformed by the truth, by the truth. You see, for the Apostle Paul, and for indeed for all of the New Testament writers, Truth was, truth is transformational. Truth is what changes us. Now, although the book of John was written many years after the book of Ephesians, we read that in Galatians uh, chapter 2, verse 9, the apostle Paul spent time with John, who would later, later write the gospel of John. And it's very likely that when Paul was writing this passage of Scripture, he may have thought of something that John would write years later. And I would like you to turn in your Bibles there, John chapter 6, and read with me from verse 31 and following. John chapter 6 is a story about Jesus interacting with the Pharisees. John chapter 6, 31 says this, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, You abide in my word, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Do you see that? You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now listen to what Jesus says. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. As soon as we commit a sin, we become enslaved by it. It sucks us down, it enslaves us, it begins to dominate us. Sinners are enslaved by their sin. Then Jesus says, the slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. If the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And how does the son set us free? He sets us free through the truth. 
the truth. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You see what Paul does in this passage of Scripture? He gives us a command, don't live like the Gentiles. He shows us the problem. The Gentiles are following the instincts of their flesh. Don't do that. How do I change, Paul? The truth, because the truth is in Jesus. The truth will set you free. The reality is that trying harder, rededicating, making a decision to change is not going to change you. More guilt, more self-loathing is not going to change you. More self-help books, listening to Oprah and Dr. Phil is not going to change you. The thing that is going to change you is the truth of the Scriptures, the truth of the Word of God. In John 17, Jesus says it most succinctly and most beautifully. He says to the Father, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. If we want to be changed, if we want to grow in Christ, if we want to be free from our addictions and the bondage that so easily entangles us and pulls us down in destructive behaviors, we need to be in the word. The word is truth, and we will be sanctified by the truth. Hebrews 4.12, you know it, the word of God It's powerful, it's sharp, sharper than a two-edged sword, penetrates to the division of bone and marrow, soul and spirit. The Word of God is a powerful tool. It is unlike any other book in the entire history of humanity. It was written by God, it was written by the finger of God, written by the inspiration of God, and it is marked by the power of God. And it is the Word of God that will change us. So, Having said all that, how does that work itself out practically in my life? Fourthly, we must begin to think and then behave differently. We must begin to think and behave differently. So in verses 22 to 24, Paul gives us a four, uh, I'm sorry, a three-step process. It's about putting off, it's about thinking properly, and putting on. Now again, before I go into this, I want to say that there are addictions that are deep, that have deep, deep, deep um, roots in our hearts. And I don't want to be cavalier about that. I don't want to be dismissive about that. These things are real, and they are, they're deadly, and they're difficult. So recognize that when you begin to deal with one of these really deep addictions, that you're beginning a process, a process that will include failure, a process that will include starting over again, a process that will be work, but a process that for a Christian is winnable. So I'm going to give you a very simple three-step process that I think the Spirit of God gave the Apostle Paul that we need to begin to apply. It applies in every different situation, every different addiction. And I believe that if we follow this, there will be an increasing level of freedom in our lives. So Paul says, first of all, in in verse 22, 
Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So what is this old self? This old self is our old nature. The word there is old man. Who we were before we met Christ. Who we were when we were still in, in darkness, when we were still the Gentiles in his context. Context. Our old nature is the nature with, that we were born with. It is our Adamic nature. It is the nature that loves sin more than righteousness. It loves sin more than God. And as we grow up, we begin to sin early on. We become a slave of sin. And the, that behavior becomes instinctive. It becomes ingrained within us. We develop patterns. We develop coping mechanisms whereby sin becomes part of us. Now, what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6 is really, really encouraging. If you have your Bibles, go there. Romans 6, Paul says this in verses 5 and following. <clears throat> For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, our old man, our old nature, that part of us that is prone to addictions and loves sin... We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, this flesh, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So if we are enslaved to sin because of our old nature, how does God begin the process of liberating us from ourselves? The first thing that he did for us in Christ was crucify that old man. That old nature was eradicated when Christ died on the cross for us. That body of sin was brought to nothing so that we could no longer be slaves to sin. In other words, we could be freed from the bondage of sin or the addictions to sin. So when you were born again, if you are a born-again believer... The Spirit of God came into your life and gave you a new nature. That old nature was crucified that day on the cross. Jesus killed it. It died with him. And when he resurrected you to newness of life through the power of the Holy Spirit, he implanted within you a new nature. Yes, you are still in your old body. You are still in this thing that we call the flesh. This thing still has instincts and impulses and drives and desires. But at the core of who you are, you no longer have a nature in harmony with your physical flesh, with your body, with your instincts, with your desires, with those things that you love and trained your body over the years to love. Who you are inside is radically different than who you were before you became a Christian. God talked about this in Ezekiel chapter 36. He says, I'm going to do a miracle. I'm going to take the heart of stone out of you, and I'm going to put in a heart of flesh. And you will be careful to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. See, that was the prof one of the many prophetic statements in the Old Testament about what God was going to do to redeem his people. The Gentiles that Paul was talking about had a fleshly flesh and a fleshly nature. 
these Christians are radically different now because of their new birth in Christ. They're that fleshly nature has been taken out, and God has placed within them, as he has placed within us, a brand new nature that loves God, loves righteousness, and is passionate about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the first thing that Paul is saying to these, these folks is understand that when the Gentiles sin, they sin because they are slaves of the sin that binds them. Their flesh and their nature are in harmony, and they are bound. But listen, Christians, that's not who you are anymore. Yes, you're still in a body that has instincts and drives that are carnal and fleshly, but in your heart, who you are by nature is radically changed. And so here's the point that he's making. The Gentiles sin as slaves. We sin by choice. We sin by choice. We don't have to. And that's why Paul says so simply, put off the old man. And what does he call the things that we have to put off? Go back to Ephesians. With its deceitful desires. Put off the old man that has those desires that say, if you watch that on television, you will feel satisfied. If you eat that from the fridge, it will make you feel bad. Those are deceitful desires. They lie to you. Because you know you don't, right? We sin volitionally, Gentiles sin helplessly. There's a whole side argument here that we, that we don't have time to talk about, but it's, it really impacts the perspective that we have on the people in our culture who are bound in their sin. We don't need to judge them, we need to love them. We don't, we don't tolerate it in the sense that we approve of it, but these people are bound by their sin. But let, we don't have time to go there. We can make a choice to be different. And you need to understand that. This goes right back to the very first point. We can be different. You can be different today. But secondly, that difference is growing and maintained and bolstered and becomes basically who we become by this. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. We must be renewed in the spirit of our minds. What Paul is saying is little, we're still in the flesh, we're still in these bodies, these bodies love sin, but if you want to change, understand that you have a new nature. And you can be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Your thinking doesn't have to be following deceitful desires that pull you towards those illicit sinful things pull you back into work so you ignore your kids and your family, pull you back into the pornography, pull you back to the fridge, pull you back to those things that you know are destructive, those deceitful desires. You can have a mind change, a heart change. Transformation begins in the mind or the heart of a believer. In other words, simply, our minds must begin to dominate our behavior. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed how? 
by the renewing of your mind. How does that happen? Truth. Truth renews our minds. We say no to those deceitful desires, and we begin to think God's thoughts after him. And this is a process that takes time. It's a process that takes work. It's a process that is fraught with setbacks and failures. But it's a process that we must pursue. It's a process that we fight through because at the end of it, there is victory as our minds begin to take control of our bodies. It's a fight that is worth fighting because it's a fight that is winnable. My father-in-law loves to use this phrase, input determines output. I think it's the simplest way I can say this. What you put in, what you feed, what you um, just saturate your mind with will begin to flow out of your soul, begin to flow out of your life. Our perspective, our worldview, how we see people, how our relationship with food, our relationship to sexuality, our relationship to all of these things that can so easily enslave us must become the must become the perspective of the Word of God. We must see these things from God's perspective. So let me give you an illustration. Right now you're struggling with a food addiction. And you're living right now at home in isolation. And this is why this whole lockdown is so devastating for so many people. We're living in isolation. And you know that your body and the deceitful desires of your flesh are compelling you to go to the fridge because when you go there, there's that momentary sense of, ah, and it feels good and it feels satisfying and it feels, and then you go to the scales and you feel terrible. So what do you do? Well, under normal circumstances, the Bible says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. So you go to church and you begin to get to know people. And then you begin to realize that the Bible says that you need to live an authentic, transparent, open, honest life. And so you realize you can do that in a small group, so you join a small group. And you realize the Bible says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. And he's not just talking in James there about physical, uh, physical stuff. He's talking about emotional and spiritual stuff. And so you confess it to a brother or sister. And they say, oh, I'll pray for you. And then a couple of days later, it's just before you go to bed, right? And I think we've all had these. You're trying to lose weight and you don't want to be addicted, but you love toast and peanut butter before bed and those 800 calories. And you feel the, you feel the fridge pulling in, right? It's just kind of calling to you. Come and eat. You'll feel great. And you kind of feel yourself being pulled. And you say to yourself, I'm in fellowship. I need perspective. I need God's truth. I need to be, I need to have my worldview tempered with what God says. So you pick up the phone, it's 11 o'clock, and your buddy's asleep, and you wake him up and you say, I'm just calling to tell you that I'm struggling because I want to go to the fridge. Or I want to go to the computer. I want to go, like, whatever it is. 
And he gives you God's perspective. He confirms for you the truth that you know already. We call it accountability. And he simply tells you what you already know. He reinforces what you know. And simply through that process, sounds so simple, you say, okay, thank you. You close the fridge, you go to bed, you get up the next morning and you have toast and peanut butter and life is good. You see, it's allowing the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and temper our behavior. It's allowing the people of God to take the Word of God to temper our behavior, to help us do what we want to do, help us be who we want to be. Again, I don't want to uh, oversimplify this. I don't want to treat addictions as trite. I don't want to be cavalier, because I know that Quitting smoking is a huge issue. Quitting, putting the alcohol aside is a huge thing because there's, there's physical dependencies and stuff that's created. So I, I, again, I understand that. But God in his grace is bigger than all of that. Lastly, and I think this is key, lastly, we must put on the new self As he says there in verse 24, put on the new self. So put off, think differently, put on. To put on the new self is to realize that before the spirit of your mind, prior to Jesus, prior to your salvation, you believed that things and experiences and pleasure were the key to fulfillment in life. That's, that's what your mind told you. That's what your body told you. That's what your heart told you. The spirit of a Christian mind comes to understand theologically and then by experience that the key to fulfillment and ultimate satisfaction is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Before you became a Christian, your mind told you, the spirit of your mind said that satisfaction can be accomplished by satisfying the appetites of my physical flesh. A Christian comes to a new place. He comes to this new birth. And we begin to realize that satisfaction and fulfillment in our journey is genuinely realized in a relationship with God. And that's why the process concludes with us putting on this new self, created after the likeness of God. So what Paul is saying is that we have been recreated in the image of God. We have been recreated in his likeness to find satisfaction in him. And the ultimate ultimate step in overcoming an addiction is that moment when you realize That whatever it is that had a hold on you now pales in comparison to the joy and the fulfillment and the blessing and the just spiritual dynamic of having a relationship with God, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. If, if, If Christianity is true, and I believe it is, then what Christianity offers us is more appealing, more wonderful, more fulfilling more alluring than anything that the world can give to us. And the key to overcoming addiction finally is to realize that. 
to live on that plane where you realize that nothing that this world can give me, illicit or legitimate, nothing can satisfy me as much as knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom, Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them now rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You were made to find your satisfaction, your rest, your fulfillment in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You were made in His image to find yourself in Him. And when we do, the power of addiction begins to be broken. We put off, we change how we think, and we begin to experience not deceitful desires, but legitimate desires filled legitimately by our relationship with Jesus. Now, all of that, I think, is theoretical. I've asked Charles, Charles Bell, who is a man where uh, he knows where he speaks. He was uh, an alcoholic and now leads our recovery ministry. And I'm going to ask Charles to come and just tell his story in five minutes about how God did an amazing life-transforming miracle in his soul. Charles. Um, basically, just listening to the message this morning, um, there may be some of our more seasoned people would remember an old TV program called This Is Your Life. And uh, basically, that's what it is. Uh, that's where I was. Um, uh, I am an alcoholic. Um, I got my first taste of alcohol at age 13, and it was a downward spiral ever since then. And, uh, you know, Paul alluded to the fact that uh, these are idols in our life, and uh, really those are things that will just take the place of God, and alcohol became that for me. And I've struggled with it since age 13, trying to get a, a handle on, around it, how to deal with it. Uh, I tried all sorts of programs. I, I tried the willpower. Uh, I tried self-help. I tried all of those, and uh, it wasn't until the Lord called me to himself that the desire for alcohol was broken. Uh, but even after that, uh, it's keeping that focus, keeping the mindset on the Lord, because I still had those desires, were, those cravings were still, still so very, very real to me. And uh, I had gone through uh, uh, quite a period where um, before I, I came to know the Lord up to the point, it was about um, our seventh anniversary where I was really, really struggling with alcohol, and it was affecting everything in my life. It was affecting my marriage. It was affecting my family. Uh, it got to the point where I just didn't want to go on. Uh, I'd had enough. And I, I can recall uh, the night that the Lord spoke to me, uh, I can recall saying to the Lord directly, um, if you want this life, you'd better take it, because if you don't, I will. And uh, it was... Uh, it was tough. It really was. Um, I just, uh, uh, I recognized I had a problem. I knew I needed to change, but where I was really finding it, the issue was I didn't see what the root cause of the problem was, and it wasn't until much, much later that I saw what the root problem was. The root problem was that I was not satisfied with God. Um, I, I, I always struggled with, I know some of you are going to laugh at this because some of you know me, I, I struggled with self-confidence. I struggled with self-worth. Uh, and uh, when I got my first taste of alcohol, that changed me. 
that made me a different person. And uh, from that point on, that's what I wanted to go after. Uh, something that just fulfilled me, something that gave me life. Uh, but I didn't recognize at the time it was a downward spiral. It wasn't leading me to life, it was leading me to death. Uh, and it wasn't until the Lord released me from that. And, and even after that, I, you know, got to be careful with this too. Even within the body, within the church as believers, we can become deceived with that as well. I was dry for 26 years. I hadn't had a drink for 26 years when I let my guard down. And uh, I went back to Ireland and uh, took a trip back to Ireland, let my guard down. Nobody around to hold me accountable. Nobody to challenge me in the things I was doing, and I slipped back into it again. And it wasn't until after that point that I realized that alcohol wasn't the problem. Alcohol wasn't the problem. It was who I thought I was was the problem, what my worth was. And I didn't recognize that my worth is in God. Uh, I'm only who I am because of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't until he got hold of my life at that point and said, you still have an idol in your life, which is you. And we need to break that. And it wasn't until that point that when I totally submitted and surrendered to God at that time that he took these, the desires for alcohol away. I didn't need it anymore because I've got God now. Uh, Paul quoted uh, Romans uh, 8.36, which is our recovery verse. Uh, if the Son will set you free, and the key to it after this is you will be free indeed. Uh, there's, no, there's no part way with that. If you... Uh, submit to the Lord, the sun will set you free, the truth will set you free, and you'll be free indeed. And I thank God now it's been 10 years uh, since that has occurred again. And we now, uh, Margaret and I, have the privilege of leading our recovery ministry. And I, I really, really appreciate what you shared there. Um, we tend to put the big labels on addictions, the alcohol, the drugs, the sex. It's not that. It's anything that enslaves you and draws you away from God to make, to make it an idol. And those need to be broken in your life. And I would encourage you, um, the verse, uh, part of what you were sharing there is about isolation. Uh, one of the verses that we use in recovery is, he who isolates himself seeks his own desires. He breaks out against all sound judgment. That's Proverbs 18.1. And I would encourage you, if you're struggling, if you're having an issue, you cannot do this alone. You need to reach out, but you need first and foremost to turn to the Lord. You need to recognize the changes necessary. You need to identify the root of the problem. You need to realize that it's the truth that will set you free and then begin to think and behave differently. Um, my testimonial verses would be Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he heard my cry. And he lifted me out of the miry pit, and he set my feet upon a rock and established my path. But you know what, it, it, the, the fabulous thing about that is that he didn't leave me there. He put a new song in my mouth. And I'm praying that many will hear it and come to know the Lord because of it. So that's kind of where, that's a little summary of where my story is. But thank God he's still continuing to walk with me and continue to keep me on the path. Thanks. Thanks, Charles. Thank you, brother. So there's, there's one thing left to ask, and that is, are you prepared to change? Are you prepared to begin the journey from bondage to freedom, from isolation to accountability, from ungodliness to godliness? That is the question that you have to answer in the depths of your heart. Do you want to be different? If you are a believer, you must answer yes. And I'd encourage you to reach out to Charles, reach out to some of our staff, um, there, is, there is help, there is encouragement, 
we can, by God's grace, lead you through a process that will change, radically change your life for the better. So let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you have called us to freedom. You have called us to newness of life in Christ. Lord, we come to you with all these deceitful desires. We've practiced them for such a long time. Many of them have become idols and we worship them because they have provided momentary satisfaction and fulfillment. But now we come to you today, Lord, and we confess that all idols are vain and empty and destructive and that we need you. So I would pray for that man or that woman who has listened to this, that young person who has listened to this message and heard Charles' testimony, who knows down in the depths of their hearts that they are bound. They are workaholics. They are alcoholics. They are bound by drugs. They are enslaved to food. They are sex addicts. Pornography has got a control in their life. Father, I pray that you would bring them to that place right now where they make a decision not to live like the Gentiles anymore. Where they come to that place where they say, I can be free and I will begin to saturate my life with your truth. Where they begin to put off with the help of others, transform their thinking with the help of others, and put on the Lord Jesus Christ with the help of others, and find in him the deepest, most fulfilling satisfaction that we are created to know. So God, do that, I pray. Just for one, for two, for ten, Lord, do it in our church, I pray, that we might walk in newness of life and be a living testimony to the world that is being ravaged and destroyed by addictions of what it looks like to walk free in the power of Christ. Let us have that testimony, I pray. Let us show the world, I pray. And we pray these things for the sake and for the name of the, and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.